I don't think any can prepare you for war. You can train, you can get yourself ready, but once you're on that front line, that's it. You know, so when you're there, you've got to be as prepared as possible. Hi, welcome to the Lead UP podcast. And uh, it's truly great to have you here joining us for our fifth episode of the second season. It is here that we focus on uh, leadership stories and success stories of our alumni. University of Pretoria boasts of a huge alumni number, close to 300,000 off the top of my head. But also the University of Pretoria remains one of South Africa's largest producers of graduates with a wide range of fields, which include some scarce fields such as engineering, financial sciences and the health sciences. Not so long ago, UP embarked on a giving campaign which raised 19.3 million rands from just 457 donors, which is truly an example of a university that cares about its local environment as well. And those funds will be used to help scholars and students within the University of Pretoria. But uh, I'm Lennox Wasara and uh, an award-winning radio presenter. It's great to be with you at this moment. During COVID, perhaps a lot of people were quite serious about what doctors had to say about their health and we're all very cautious about our health. But today we speak to uh, Dr. Myberg. He is a, a specialist. Dr. Anton Myberg is a pulmonologist, who, which means that he specializes in lung conditions. And during his time at the University of Pretoria, he completed his undergraduate from our Faculty of Health Sciences. Presently, he's working in clinical medicine as an ICU physician, and he currently is uh, working with the Linksfield Clinic, where he spends most of his time seeing several clients. And uh, Dr. Myberg, welcome to the show. Thank you for joining us here on the Lead UP Podcast. Thanks for having me, Lennox. It's nice to be here. It's nice to be finally back to my alma mater. Haven't been here for a few years. Things have definitely changed in the, the area here. It's looking much brighter. Yeah, indeed it is. Uh, that's true, certainly true. A sense of evolution, if it were. You st- at the time, when you started studying at the University of Pretoria, you actually studied in Afrikaans, which wasn't actually your home language, but you managed to you know, study medicine and managed to pull, pull it through. So I studied in Afrikaans, and, and I came from a very typical Jewish day school where we learned Afrikaans, didn't really speak it much. And I remember my first year of, of, of medical school, I actually walked around with an Afrikaans dictionary. I had no idea what half the words were, what people were saying to me, and it finally evolved, and you managed to speak. And the university was really good to its students because although they spoke to us in Afrikaans, they allowed us to write exams in English, and they were very tolerant of us, and it was a very free-flowing time, and things worked well in, in a matter of aspects from regards to tolerance, from regards to just allowing people to actually be you. I mean, the, the classes were were conducted in a different language, but which you got used to very quickly. So it, it was very smooth and very good running. Yeah, well, did you always want to do medicine? Was that always part of the plan for you? Yeah, I, I, I go back to being a, a little tiny tot. I think I was at the age of four. I remember my father bought me a stethoscope. And really then I had envisaged in my mind that I was going to be a doctor. I don't think I had any other path laid out for myself. It was That was it, and uh, I had no option for myself. Yeah, wow. I mean, it's from a childhood sort of like vision to, yeah. to living it out. It must be quite a special experience for you. But uh, what led you to specialize as a pulmonologist? What was it about the lungs that got you so invested in, in doing that? So I think as a pulmonologist, it's one of the few specialities where you, you get to deal with everything in medicine. You know, in order to become a pulmonologist, you first got to become a specialist physician. And a specialist physician is almost like a, it's almost like a pediatrician for adults. Okay, so you basically deal with all types of conditions. It's obviously more specialised than a general practitioner. And myself having asthma, you know, I was quite involved in breathing issues and understanding what it meant. And 
that sort of drove me towards doing pulmonology. You know, I enjoyed working in ICU. I enjoyed working with the mechanics of breathing and how to help people with breathing problems. And it always fascinated me how people could go from a state of not breathing to being able to breathe with a slight bit of treatment. And how it's evolved in the last few years has been unbelievable. Yeah. And uh, talking about how it's evolved over the last couple of years, over the last couple of years, we're hit hard by the COVID-19 pandemic. It uh, altered our lives severely. I mean, in ways that we had never even imagined and thought. And at the time, you were an expert speaking to help people and educate people about uh, COVID-19. During your time communicating with different stakeholders, communicating with the public, uh, what did this actually teach you, um, you know, this difficult time? So first of all, I think what people don't understand is we never signed up for something like this. You know, when you when you think about someone becoming a doctor and doing medicine, you think of glory days, you think of a guy playing golf every Wednesday, you know, driving a 4 by 4 and driving off into the sunset. Well, it never was that. It never is that. And, and what COVID has taught us is to be humble. You know, we learned a lot of lessons in COVID. It was a war zone. It was an absolute disaster. You know, people were dying in front of you. I mean, I remember the one day... I had a 40-year-old gentleman who wrote his will on his cell phone in front of me in ICU. We put him on a ventilator and he was dead within an hour. And that's what we were seeing. That's what we were dealing with. And one of the big things we gained through COVID was collaboration. And by that, I mean that there was a group of doctors that used to work as a group of doctors, but not together. And there was a whole ICU collaboration where all of the specialists in Gauteng and Cape Town and, and all over South Africa got together on a WhatsApp forum and worked together going through all the problems, all the issues, and deciding how to treat patients and what was the best treatment for patients, and working together as a team under leadership of professors such as Professor Guy Richards and Professor Mervyn Moore and a few other professors who actually helped guide us into a direction where we could actually treat people effectively and efficiently. Yeah. How were you doing, though, at the time? Because, I mean, you mentioned a gentleman who wrote his will and then he was gone in about an hour. That's quite devastating. How do you deal with all of that? I mean, how did you take care of yourself? It was very traumatic at the time. I mean, you know, we used to, and the numbers, I don't think the actual numbers that were being sort of reported were the official numbers. We feel they're much higher than that. And on a day-to-day basis, losing patience becomes a very defeatist type of way of living because, you know, when you're seeing these sick people, that having to deal with this type of thing is it's soul-breaking. So you deal with it in a very sort of methodical way. In other words, you come, you come to work, you treat the patient, you give them the best treatment that you can give them, you make sure you're up-to-date in that type of thing, and then you've got to move on. Because if you sit there and you start thinking about it, which you can't do, then you almost can go into depression. Because you've got to take it forward and say, hold on, Yes, somebody has died and it's a terrible thing, but I can't sit and harp with it because there's somebody else next to them that's in a predicament and I've got to help them. And you kept on moving on and you almost put things in a box and put them away. And what we do is a lot of time, you know, I'm quite an avid runner, so I run with friends. And a lot of time, you know, you run with friends and you sort of decant things and discuss things and that's your own way of psychologically just sort of treating yourself so you can actually discuss it and how you break the things down and then you move on from that and you know a lot of people that we we do sort of interact with are medical people so you can sort of be on the same page and sort of break things down and even when I was working in the hospital we used to work in teams in the hospital the same doctors and even doctors who had nothing to do with internal medicine pulmonology we had surgeons we had a we had a whole host of people that would work together in a team as one sort of doctor body working together, breaking things down and helping each other. 
You mentioned moments ago about the sense of collaboration. Why does it always have to take us that level of, uh, you know, I guess, extreme conditions for people to sort of come together? Why would it not be the case if things were sort of like normal, if it were? Proud, arrogance. People are too proud. You know, you, I think people feel that if you have to ask somebody for help, then it shows a weakness. Mm-hmm. And, and this was a time where we learned that weakness is above the board. Everyone's weak. And we needed to stem together and work together in order to rise above it and, and come together. We all know that you know, with trauma, any trauma brings about a resilience in people because you've got, to, you've, you've got to interact with other people and you've got to work above it so that you can come through it and see sort of the, the silver lining behind the clouds. And I always used to say, you always want to see that, uh, that rainbow and you want to see the unicorn. And I think that we've seen the unicorn now that the, the essence of COVID is over. We're all looking for other issues now, like monkeypox and all other things. You know? But it was enough with COVID. Thank you very much. Yeah. Looking back, uh, perhaps looking at you, a lot of people are like, wow, you're so successful as a doctor, not only a doctor, a specialist doctor. Uh, in what ways would you say that your view on success has somewhat changed during this time of loss, of uncertainty, and also for you being front-facing with uh, patients in ICU? Yeah, so as you say, I think people see success as driving a Porsche Cayenne, having a holiday home and, you know, having multiple domestic workers and playing golf twice a week. That's not success. That's wealth. And there's a big difference. Wealth is something that one can acquire. Success is is knowing what you have and appreciating it, knowing that you've got a family, knowing that you've got people to go home to, you've got support, knowing that you can give to other people and knowing that you can be part of a community and give back to people and get from people at the same time. That's what success is. So it doesn't matter what degree you do, what you've done in your life, if you can go to bed at night knowing that you've done the right thing in your day, done something that's above board and done something that's going to help people and just be able to, to have that feeling and sense that you've accomplished something in your own life, that's success. Yeah, speaking about success, uh, you made the quite a contra, uh, comparison success and wealth. Mm. Why is a lot of people gravitate towards looking at, as you mentioned, the Porsche or the Ferrari and that's all the social bigger media. house? That's social media. It looks great on social media. You know, you're on Snapchat, you're on Instagram, everyone has a picture of it. But the reality of it is when you take that person out of that Instagram, you know, the environment's very different to what they're seeing there. You know, so it's, yeah. all, it's all very nice what people's perceived ideas of people are. And people don't realize without the experience, you know, with the experience of seeing so many people dying and with the experience of seeing people at their lowest points in their life and and seeing how people suffer, only then do you realize what's important in life. And sometimes you have to go through a traumatic stage in your life to understand what what is real and what it's all about. You've got to be happy with your portion in life. Yeah, true, true. That's a happy man. Yeah, some people say, you know, I mean, I'd be happy, I'd rather cry in a Porsche than, you know, cry in another car. (laughs) You, You can cry in a Porsche, but then you cry alone. Yeah. You know, crying alone is far worse than driving a destroyed car that's going to get you from the same place, from A to B, but having support along the way. Now that you've weathered the storm, so to speak, and you had your, you have your support structure, you had the group of people that you worked with, other doctors that you're running with, as you mentioned, taking you back, how would you set up your life now that perhaps if you were to get, you know, another sort of like experience of that kind, you're better equipped to to cope with the with the pressure, to cope with the test and the challenge that does come? Yes, I think we, we now have protocols in place to adapt to this type of pandemic and war zone. You know, from a life point of view, because we set up a standard of working with people, it actually gives you a bit of a chance to sort of take a breather and take a step back and, and put the onus on other people at the same time. So it allows you to actually sort of maintain some sense of semblance in life and some sense that you're actually going to have a breather. But 
I don't think any can prepare you for war. You can mm-hmm. train, you can get yourself ready, but once you're on that front line, that's it. You know, so when you're there, you've got to be as prepared as possible, and that's keeping up to date with everything going on in the world with regards to medical science. And it's also understanding human emotion and human sort of reality, what other people have to go through, and understanding what families go through. It's not only about the doctors, but it's also understand that a big part of our job is our nursing staff. And we rely on our nursing staff. And what they went through at the same time was also as dramatic. Talking about the times, you know, you also featured in, in a podcast, I was speaking at length about educating people about COVID in particular. When it comes to communication of that kind, there was a lot of fake news, a lot of people are sharing a lot of myths and a lot of conspiracy theories, mm. especially on the vaccine and stuff like that. Um, how did you go about sort of like uh, busting some of those myths, especially in a time of uncertainty? Well, actually, it was very easy because I was involved on the front line. So when you're involved in the front line and you've actually got the practical knowledge of working with this, it's very easy to bust those myths. And there was lots of myths about ivermectin, ivermectin, ivermectin. I don't know if you've heard about it, ivermectin. Large myths about that. Um, you know, it, it's, ivermectin was a great drug for cows but, and horses, but not for human beings. And there was a group of prominent doctors overseas that punted ivermectin who have now been struck off the roll, who have now been sort of basically sent down the alleyway and saying, listen, you're no longer required to work in hospitals because they punted something that wasn't peer-reviewed. It's all about peer review. It's about experience. And that was actually the whole point of my, my podcast with Howard Feldman during that time was to actually show people that we can get through this. We can get through COVID. We've got to understand it. We've got to be educated about it. There's certain things we can do. There's certain things we can't do. But we always try to keep a balanced understanding of what was good for you and try and avoid all those sort of people who were setting up these myths and setting up these stories because it's all about people and about sensationalism. As we said earlier, it's all about people wanting to be on social media and, and, and be known. And that in itself is dangerous because as soon as you can present some mention of something that's actually educational and something that can actually push people in the other direction, you want to actually go on on a podcast and say, well, listen, I know this and everything. But when you've got the experience and you're working with it, it changes everything. Yeah. You spoke about balance. And I also just want to balance this out a little bit. I mean, you must have had some great days out there, um, you know, in ICU. What what were some of those days like? There were great days. There were days when we had, actually, I'll never forget it. I had a family of, of, of four people, one family, four people that got extremely ill from COVID. And... The one was a, an elderly grandmother. The other was a young man of about 25 and, and both his parents. I remember we discharged the mother. The father was in hospital for three months. We almost lost him. The young man went on a ventilator. We almost lost him. And we got three out of the four family members out of hospital. The grandmother, we didn't manage to get out. She was a very elderly lady, very sick. But we managed to get a 25-year-old, a 60-year-old and his wife out of hospital. And they survived. And they, they lived to tell the tale. And, wow. and and when you when you get sort of things like that, it makes you appreciate that, you know what, we had a job, we had something to do, and we managed to do it because of teamwork and because, of course, God wanted us to do it. Never forget that, uh, you know, there's someone upstairs that controls the whole thing and uh, we're just the messengers. But when you do have those successes, it makes it all the more worthwhile. When you just get a thank you from somebody when they're walking out of hospital and you, and you see them go out and you never thought they were going to get out of hospital... That's it. That makes it all worthwhile. Yeah, a deeper level of purpose. Yeah. And and you're part of the Jewish community as well, a very uh, close community. And uh, how have you been able to integrate your your professional life as well as your spiritual life on a daily basis? 
So, I mean, I, I, I pray every day, morning and afternoon and evening, and I go to the synagogue, and that balances me, and I learn some scriptures. That, that balances me. That helps me understand, as I said, that there's a greater being out there. There's a greater power. And, and as I said, I'm just a messenger. You know, what will be will be, but my job in life is to, to follow the direction that I'm taking due to a religious tolerance and due to a religious understanding of what it's all about. Understanding the laws of Judaism helps you helps you with people, helps you understand, helps try and make a bit of humility and modesty, have empathy for people, and knowing once again that there's no arrogance needed. We're just human, and we're just doing a job, and we're doing a job that God wants us to do. Yeah. And, and talking about, you spoke at length as well about how success, you know, is not like a quick fix as well. And I think somebody once said that there's no elevator to the top. One has to take the stairs. And how have you experienced the challenge, you know, of the success journey? Because it is quite a, a journey. Yeah. So, so it was a very, very difficult journey. Knowing I always wanted to get into medicine, finally getting into medicine. And once again, everyone thinks going into medicine is this huge, amazing thing. But from day one of medical school, as a doctor, your life was curtailed. You had to do the ABC rule, which I, I call it, apply bum to chair. Yeah. You had to sit down, <laughs> you had to graft. While all your mates were already three years down the line, having got their BCOMs and they were already earning money, you were going to sixth year, you, you were still grafting, you were still working, and then they were out jolling all the time, and you were still working, and then you did your internship, and you had to fight for a place in the government to get a place in your internship where you actually wanted to be. Then all of a sudden, while we were doing our six-year of medicine, they brought in community service. Wow. And that was also just a, another sort of obstacle which you had to get through because it's all good and well to do community service, but you want to do it in a place where you're comfortable, where you can give back to people and not be shafted someplace where you've got to dislodge yourself from your family and from your community. Each step of the way is a challenge, and each way you've got to almost fight a different authority to get to where you want to be. And then you want to do your specialization. And I remember when I was trying to do my specialization, there were no posts. And I had to get privately, sort of a private post where I wasn't being paid by the government to to work and specialize. I had to self-fund myself. That was a challenge I had to work through. And it took me three years to do that. So uh, I did my, my MBCHB, which is my undergraduate tax from 95 to 2000. Then I did my special physician title, which took me four years. And then another three years to become a pulmonologist. And you had to fight through every step of the way. It wasn't easy, you know, yeah. each, and you had to try and maintain a balance of family life and of social life and of health and of of just actually sleeping sometime, eating in between and trying to get all of that under one roof in order to get to your, to your role of where you wanted to be in life. So it hasn't been easy. And I mean, studying for exams and going to write exams and the stress of all those type of things, those are huge, huge stresses in the life of a doctor, you know. People always talk about the fact that, um, you know, overseas people have got to pay back all their student loans and that type of thing, and that's a reality because you're studying, you don't have time to have a secondary job to, to bring in to pay your student loans, and you've got to sort of work that out before you even start working in, in, in a private practice or in the public practice, wherever you're going to work, and you've got to fight for every step, tooth and nail. So those are some of the obstacles we had in trying to, get to where we are today and and being here today you look back and say well it wasn't so bad but uh, when you're going through that it's bad yeah but you have a fighting spirit 
you know, you have a fighting spirit, like it's a sense of like, like, you know. I'll tell you, I definitely haven't got a fighting spirit because yeah. I support Liverpool. For 30 years, <laughs> we didn't get a trophy and now we're just on top of our game and we, we, we're beating all those rubbish other teams and um, <laughs> we will never walk alone. So, yeah, I've got that fighting spirit. Yeah, I'm not sure how the Manchester United fans would feel about that and the other fans, mm-hmm. but... Uh, you know, but talking about the fighting spirit, what uh, what allows you to embody that? Because is it like previous experiences where you've actually had a challenge and overcome it? Or is it just the confidence in knowing that, you know what, I can still make it no matter what comes my way? I think confidence comes with, as you say, from previous challenges. So you've, you've got to fall down in order to stand up. And you've got to experience things in life in order to have confidence. You can't just walk into a situation and say, you know, you will never believe before I started doing these podcasts, if, if anyone had phoned me and said, will you do a podcast? I wouldn't have slept for three days before. I wouldn't have eaten. I would have come here nauseous. I would have said, well, you know, I would have been green, that type of thing. And I think overcoming that issue with actually having the sort of ability to do all these podcasts has given me the ability to say, okay, I've overcome that. I can work on that now. It's a natural thing for me. It's easy to do now. So that's how you overcome your challenges. Yeah. It's been 20 years since you were... Graduated from You make university. me sound very old. <laughs> well, you don't look it. So. <laughs> so that's a good thing. I mean, it's been a while. I mean, what's it like being back? I mean, it's quite a, you said it's a little different. You, it's emotional. I mean, I was driving through like Pretoria now, driving on Atterbury Road, and, you know, you see Rajal Road along the side there. This was my life for six years. I loved it. You know, it was, it was a great experience for me. You took a, a young Jewish guy out of a, a community where it was like this, I was tight, and I came in, I'll never forget my first day coming to Varsity, and I heard about a corsace, I'm like, what's a corsace, you know, like, is that where you get supper, you know, like, <laughs> like, I had no idea, you, and, you, and I saw all these guys wearing hats and uniforms, and all the resas were set up, and it, it was such a lack of experience, it was such a good place to be, you know, I've got firm friends that I made from, from Tux, you know, that, that we still speak to this day, some of them even work with me at, at Linksworld, where I work in Johannesburg, but I've got other ones that live overseas. And we all got such a grounding from this university. You know, I always say that the, the Tucky's medical degree far outweighs other degrees because they teach you here how to be doctors, not how to be specialists. And you've got to be a doctor first before you can be a specialist. And we were very well trained here. And it was it was such good teaching. And they were so tolerant. And it was really, really just an experience that I would say everyone should have. Yeah. And moving forward, perhaps from your side, I mean, all the things that you've learned over the years and also from the University of Pretoria that's also aided you to succeed to the levels that you have, uh, where do you sort of see yourself going as well in the future? So, yeah, I think everyone's talking about immigration and that type of thing. I'm a stalwart. I want to be here. I'm happy here. I love my country. It's given me much. And, and we're hoping that the lights will stay on, literally and figuratively. Yeah. But, you know, we I'm working in a, in a great practice. I'm working with uh, good guys, you know, in a happy place. And my, my role is to stay in that type of environment, helping people, treating people, working in a nice place and and staying in that line of work because that's what I enjoy. Yeah. Look, enjoyed uh, chatting with you, Dr. Myberg. It's been quite a great pleasure learning so much about how your life has been structured and how, you know, you've managed to stay resilient throughout some of the difficult times in your career. And, uh, you know, with such a passion to serve people and, uh, you know, such a good heart to ensure that, you know, everybody out there does get assistance the way that you do, especially during COVID. So really been a, a great pleasure to be chatting with you today on the LeadDP podcast. been great. Thank you for having me. And uh, it's really been nice to be back here. And I can see you guys are doing some great work. 
Incredible. That does bring us to the end of our conversation. Learn so much about being humble as a leader and also that uh, success is not always about the things you, material things you acquire, but also a sense of inner peace, if it were. But uh, that does bring us to the end of our conversation. Thank you for tuning in. If you are tuning in via YouTube, thank you for watching. And uh, Spotify and Apple Podcast listeners, thank you for joining. Uh, you can find the Lead UP podcast at uh, up.ac.za for slash Lead UP or wherever you find your podcast. This season, we're releasing all our episodes on the last Monday of every month. So this podcast is produced by the University of Pretoria's Alumni Relations Office. Our production team includes Samantha Castle, Elna Schutz, and our sound engineers are Louis Cluter Production. So we meet again from my side and from our team. It's nothing but love and light. We'll catch you again on episode six. Music